Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast exploring Scottish history and culture through adventures and investigations. We go up mountains, we delve into dark caves, we go to strange and wonderful places to bring you both famous and lost stories of Scotland. My name is Annie and I'm an archivist and historian. And I'm Jenny Johnston. I'm a specialist in being Scottish. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in the Central Belt and I've travelled the country extensively. And uh, the last couple of years, I've been immersing myself in the Highlands, hiking Monroes, camping on beaches and doing gigs around all the wee towns up here. And I uh, visit museums. Yes. <laughs> and even libraries. Oh, stop. But that's just what this podcast is all about. Each week, we'll be taking you around Scotland in the form of stories, history and adventure. And where else better to start than by exploring one of the biggest mysteries of Scotland for well over a thousand years. That's right. We're talking about possibly the biggest Scottish celebrity of all time. It is, of course. Lorraine Kelly. Oh, no. (laughs) Nah, nah. Despite the fact that she has had a very respectable and long-lived career in the public eye of the Scottish, she doesn't quite beat the international world-renowned fame of our girl Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster. We have over 1,500 years of lore, stories, sightings, and even photos of a giant creature in the waters of Loch Ness, which is just south of where we're sitting right now. Yes, we both live in Inverness, and it seemed natural for us to go on a monster hunt. We found so many beautiful and intriguing stories that we've decided to split Loch Ness into two episodes. This is the first part, where we're looking at mysticism and legends of the loch, from St. Columbus, confrontation with the Loch Ness monster, to the significance of sea beast symbols in Scotland's ancient communities of the Picts. Well, in the second episode, we will look more at how science and technology has shaped both the natural landscapes around the loch and its relationships with the people, both those who live on its shores and those who live on the other side of the world. We'll examine the awe-inspiring natural history of the loch and how innovations in transport, technology and tourism have merged together to make the Loch Ness Monster a global sensation. We also discover how all these factors culminated in a sudden death on the loch almost 70 years ago, which shocked the international sporting community. But first, I'm really excited for this episode, where we're looking at the mythology and legends of monsters, and how they can help us understand the world today. What has the Loch Ness Monster symbolised and meant to different generations of Highlanders over the centuries? And what does the wild and beautiful loch mean to the thousands of people who visit every year? So considering we're so close to the loch, let's begin by talking about our personal experiences of Loch Ness. What do you think about when you think of Loch Ness? Um, pain, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, my, my main experience with Loch Ness is uh, I moved up here and I wanted to get to know the area a bit better. So I decided to do the Great Glen Way, which is an 85 mile long hike from Fort William in the west to Inverness in the east. And um, most people take five to seven days to do this, but I couldn't get the time off work. So I decided to do it in two and a half days. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Surprisingly, it was miserable. Um, It was a lot of miles and it rained almost the entire time. But it was, when I think back to it, while I was uncomfortable, I was also just in utter awe at my surroundings the whole time. It made the pain completely worth it. You know, it made it feel like nothing. As you're walking along, you're walking along both the shores of the loch and you're also walking up high on the hills next to it. And you get this amazing concept of just the scale of the landscape. And you have the beautiful mountains. You've got some phenomenal Scottish natural forests as well, which are really dense and thick and just full, full of life. And then also these huge big grey skies and it's amazing. So my thoughts of Loch Ness are rainy pain, but really, (laughs) really wonderful rainy pain. 
<laughs> so I've actually been swimming in Loch Ness. Oh. My um my father worked on a scallop boat and whenever he had the time he'd take me and my brother swimming in lochs all over Scotland. Oh wow. And Loch Ness was one of these locations. Wait, so you've actually been physically Nessie hunting? I have I've been physically Nessie hunting. Wow. That's the most Scottish thing I have <laughs> ever heard. That's amazing. Did you ever see anything? So that's the thing. You don't see anything in Loch Ness. It's so incredibly murky that you wouldn't oh. be able to see your hand in front of your face. Oh, wow. It's that feeling for most of the depth. So if you're, even if you're in relatively shallow water, if you sink yourself to the bottom of the loch, it feels as though you can't see sunlight at all. But then it gives you a kind of out-of-body experience because it's, it's also very, very cold. Loch Ness stays at six degrees the full year. So you, even if you're in a wetsuit, you feel physically very cold and your mind just wanders to all of these very surreal places. The tiniest little brush of a fish against you feels like it could be an ancient monster little bit of seaweed tickles your hand and that's definitely one of Nessie's fins but yes it's it's a very invigorating experience to swim in Loch Ness mostly because of the cold <laughs> yeah that sounds terrible so we're going to commence this journey with the earliest and most famous sighting of the Loch Ness Monster. The first recorded interaction with Nessie comes in 565 Common Era. So this is almost 1500 years ago in the 6th century. But this has been a fantastic episode to research. It's been so much fun because even though the Loch Ness Monster is a worldwide phenomenon, by looking at this first encounter in the 6th century, we've become immersed in the world of Pickland and the Picts. Now the Picts are absolutely fascinating because there are still so many mysteries and blank spaces in their histories. And hopefully, by applying a little bit of imagination to that today, we'll be able to fill in some of those blank spaces. Scotland in the 6th century is nothing like what we imagine it today. There was no sense of this land being a unified country. It is divided into multiple kingdoms, and in the north and the east, we meet the Picts, who are late Iron Age people. We don't have any sources written by the Picts themselves, so we rely on what's been written about them, from the Romans and then later on from Gallic and English monks. And they're called Picts because that's Roman, right? That's Roman for painted men? Yes, that's right. There's also a Celtic word, Picti, which the name Pict could have originated from. But it's safer to assume that it was the Romans who named the Picts because they were the first one to steal the name in the written word. So when they say painted men, do they mean literally painted with, you know, blue paint? That's what I imagine. Or was it what else? Um, it was often tattoos. So we'd be seeing them picking their skin with some kind of needle mm -hmm. and rubbing soot on it or a herbal dye. Oh, wow. So it leaves a more permanent mark. But then they would also, of course, be able to put non-permanent dyes on their skin as well. Wow. Okay. Um, but. I've actually got some picked pictures. These are some illustrations from Harriet's Brief and True Report, published in 1590. 1590. So it's coming 500 years after the last pick stepped foot on this earth. 
but it would have been drawn from textual evidence with a decent amount of guesswork and imagination. But I think they are quite beautiful in their own way. Can you describe what these pics look like? So, yeah, we have a picture of a man and a woman and they are both stark naked, which is uh, very unrealistic for the North Highlands, I'm going to say. I assume they would have had some skins. Maybe they're just posing for the paintings, <laughs> um, getting their best birthday suit on. Um, both, both the male and the female have luscious long hair um, and they're tattooed completely head to toe. The male, he's sort of tattooed in animal prints and animal faces. He's got fish scales up his shins and is that maybe bears on his knees and monsters across him, which I assume is a sort of symbol of his, his strength and, and, and maybe the kills that he's made. And in his hand, he's got the head the severed head of another man and a severed head at his feet. He's got a spear as well and a huge sword. And funnily enough, the woman actually has a big spear as well. So it looks like they were both very much active in battle, you know, or at least being painted that way. The woman, she's got much more delicate tattoos. There are flowers wrapped all around her body, which look really, really nice, actually. No, it's really interesting that this is, you know, one of the earliest representations we have of Picts. You have to think that there must be some truth in it, you know? So yes, this kind of illustration would have been drawn from Roman texts on the pics. Now there's some incredible Roman testimonies on their encounters with the pics, and they are rich and varied. One of my favourite ones comes from the Roman Tacticus, who talks about encountering the Caledonians in 83 AD in the Battle of Mons Grappius. So Tacticus is writing retrospectively. He wasn't there, but he records a speech made by the great warrior leader of the Caledonians. And for me, it's one of the most evocative and powerful battle speeches ever made. So this is the leader of the Caledonians speaking to his warriors before they fight against the Romans. We, the most distant dwellers upon the earth, the last of the free, have been shielded till today by our very remoteness and by the obscurity in which has shrouded our name. He continues to talk about the Romans and that they rob, slaughter and plunder and give it the lying name of empire. He accuses the Romans of creating a desolation and calling it peace. Wow. Wow, and this was written by a Roman. You know, it sounds like he almost admires the Picts. I mean, this is the beginning of the Romans' encounters with the northern tribal people, and they have so much trouble with them for hundreds of years. And I guess these people that they're initially fighting are the very close ancestors to the Picts? Yes, they're simply a couple of generations before the Picts. Wow, and it's, it's amazing that he bothered to write down a battle speech like that that speaks so badly of the Roman Empire. Surely there's like, I don't know, like a hesitant respect there? I agree. I imagine that when the Roman first encountered the Caledoni, they saw this kind of romanticism, I guess, of perhaps their relationship with this rugged environment that we would not see elsewhere mm -hmm. in the, the Roman Empire. Um, however, Romans soon got their hype team <laughs> on stamping out any of this romanticism and the pics are painted as barbaric and savage and enemies to Rome. They become a kind of arch enemy or nemesis because not only do they refuse to become amalgamated into the Roman Empire but they hold on to their culture and traditions that Romans perceive as being unbearably uncivilized. 
Ah, okay. And that's why you end up with things like Hadrian's Wall running across uh, Northern England, you know, to sort of divide up Roman Britain and keep them away from the Pictish tribes. But the Loch Ness Monster is first seen in the 6th century, which is way after the fall of the Roman Empire. So what has this got to do with the Romans? Well, I guess the Romans are the first lens that we use for looking at the Picts. What we see when the Romans built Hadrian's Wall is cultures north and south going on completely different trajectories. Which we have been on ever since. (laughs) (laughs) So south of Hadrian's Wall, we have Roman Britain who are engaging with the Romans' political and social and technological Mm -hmm. way of life. Mm -hmm. North of the Wall, we have Pictish tribes. And that's, that's not completely blanket people living close to the border are of course going to be impacted Mm -hmm. trading with the romans Mm -hmm. and so on and what year was the wall built in 122 common era so would you say the wall helped with the development of the pictish culture so i guess hadrian's wall has enabled the picts to continue living in a tribal way of life Mm -hmm. and continue on a more natural trajectory okay instead of seeing the kind of drastic culture shift that we get in the South. So really the Picts' tactics of being so barbaric and fighting back so hard really, really helped them. It allowed their culture to remain as it was. Yeah, I think that's a really accurate way of describing it. That's great. Yes, freedom. (laughs) It's funny, it makes me um, strangely proud to be Scottish when we talk about this. I I love the idea that we we stood our ground and we said, no, we like our way of life and we're going to keep it that way. There's some deep pride within me. I don't know. Do you feel that as well? I, I do. I think it's the the resistance to the idea that someone else can rule you better mm-hmm. than what you can. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of why I, I love the the war speech uh, with the, the line, the Romans create a desolation and call it peace. Yeah. It's as in, for their peace, they need to destroy everything that yeah. we have. I think it's just an absolute, they're so confident in their culture and their way of life that they will fight for it, you know, and they will put up every barrier and make it as difficult as physically possible because they know how they want to live their lives. So after the Romans, the next people to really encounter the Picts and write about it are missionaries. So that's the context for St. Columba about to meet the Loch Ness monster when he's travelling to Loch Ness to convert the Picts. So Inverness and Loch Ness are really important locations for the Picts. And in 565, this area was where the king of the Picts had his main residence on a craggy hill overlooking Loch Ness. One of the main ways we understand the Pictish people are through the artefacts they have left behind. Decorative metalwork, and beautiful and intricate stone carvings. Often in these carvings, we see a shape of an animal, usually called the Pictish beast. Historians don't actually know what this beast is. However, it accounts for 40% of Pictish animal representations. So we know it is a really culturally significant symbol for the Picts. There are suggestions that the Pictish beast could be representing a mythological water horse or kelpie, dragons or sea serpents, or, dare I say it, the Loch Ness Monster. So I've actually got a picture of a Pictish beast. This is from the Stone of Brodie, where it's seen represented under two 
dragon. Jenny, what do you think this beast is? Oh, wow. Honestly, first impression, this is like a horse riding a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, it, it's very, uh, definitely the body of it looks like a horse. It's actually, it's filled with this intricate pattern and that's what Celtic art was really known for. And if you don't or aren't aware of it, Google some, it is really phenomenally intricate and carved into stone, but somehow it just makes it look like it flows and that really gives this animal, even though it looks like a horse, it looks like it could be in the water very easily as well. The whole stone, really, the way that they do their circles and it's also geometric and very, it looks very logical, but also very free-flowing. It's quite a, quite a contrast in the rock. Yes, I see beautiful symmetry in so many of the shapes. And if you just imagine the kind of tools that they would be using for these carvings, it's incredible that they've managed to get such exact lines and such a, a kind of fluid movement almost to the drawing. For me, the Pictish Beast looks as though it has the head of a dolphin mm. and the body of some kind of four-legged mammal, which it, it, it's a very curious beast to behold. Because it looks like it could be an animal of either the land or the sea. It almost looks as though it wants to swim on land and walk on water. It's a very unique <laughs> monster indeed. I've got another example of a carving of the Pictish Beast, which is a more kind of rough outline than the intricate Brody Stone. Have a look. Oh wow, this one, this one looks a lot more Loch Ness monstery, if I say so myself. It definitely, this looks a lot more sea creaturey. It's actually kind of strange how much this compares to our modern day representation of the Loch Ness Monster. It's got this big swooping head and it's very, very smooth looking. You can definitely see this head poking out of the water, you know, and scaring some tourists. It's actually quite striking how similar that is to what we consider the Loch Ness Monster today. Well, we know from the locations of the carvings and what they depicted that we can tell coasts and lochs were very important places for the Picts. Multiple boat and salmon carvings have been found, and historians think that there's layers of reasons for this. The Picts were bound to the natural lay of the land much more than we are today. It dictated where they could live, it shaped their daily routines, and it defined their cultures. Very practically, they would have depended on shellfish and fish as a food supply, and living near a loch meant a reliable and predictable food source was always present. The salmon carvings could mark a particularly bountiful location or the only food source that allowed survival for a harsh year. Sea lochs are gateways between land and sea, and marine power would have been a massive mark of strength and would offer much stronger fishing opportunities. If a group of picks controlled the area around a sea loch, they could gain higher volumes of food, ensuring success and growth for their community. Rivers often mark territorial boundaries, plus they are key landmarks for finding your way in a land without maps. And by carving markings in these areas the Picts could have been claiming their territory or making directional markings or communicating with other tribes or it could have just been a simple no swimming here sign you know <laughs> they didn't have the same mass producing capabilities that we have today so they just had to pick their spot very wisely and say watch out there's a monster in this loft keep your kids close <laughs> And it's on the banks of Loch Ness that Picts have an incredible meeting with St. Columba. St. Columba was an Irish abbot famed for spreading Christianity amongst the Picts. Most of what we know about St. Columba comes from the books written by his relative, 
Abdemnan, who was writing these events about 100 years after they happened. So we can take what they're saying with a wee pinch of salt. Yeah, this is a great story though. So St. Columbo was walking along the shores of Loch Ness when he came across a group of Picts and he sees that the Picts are all distraught and very upset and that they're actually physically digging a grave. So obviously he goes up to them and he asks them what's happened. And they tell him that their friend was swimming in the river Ness and as he was swimming, this giant beast came rearing out of the water, mouth wide open, and grabbed him. Now by the time the Picts got in their boat and rowed out to him, it was too late. He unfortunately died and all they could do was get his body, get it in the boat, and take it back to shore, where they meet St. Columba. On hearing this, St. Columba tells one of his faithful companions, Lugni, to swim across the river and get a boat. Now, Lugni is like the type of companion you want to have, because he doesn't even <laughs> blink, man. Honestly, he just jumps in that river, and he starts swimming it across. And lo and behold, this monster rears its head again and starts going after Lugni, right? And all the picks are terrified and start screaming, but not St. Columba, because he's a massive token fan, right? And he makes a cross with his fingers and he goes, you shall not pass. Wait, what? I think that's more than a pinch of salt, Jenny. All right, okay. Well, it's close enough. (laughs) He says, thou shalt go no further, nor touch the man. Go back with all speed. And just like that, the divine power pulled the monster backwards as if by ropes. Look, he got the boat and rode safely back to shore. And all the picks were so impressed that they converted right on the spot. You know, when I watched Lord of the Rings for the first time, it was almost a spiritual experience for me too. And this really is an intriguing tale for so many reasons, not least your Irish accent. Thank you. So the St. Columba and Loch Ness monster story is one of transformation of a culture. The Picts continued stone carvings after conversion to Christianity, incorporating the sign of the Christian cross and other Christian motives amongst the other more mysterious symbols that they have. Mm -hmm. What I find interesting, though, is what the monster is representing in this very story of St. Columba. Because the monster is portrayed as horrifying, a beast that the Picts require salvation from. In the history book of St. Columba, the Pictish people are also described as barbaric heathens. So perhaps... In the tale of St. Columba, the Loch Ness Monster is representative of the Pictish people, their practices and their beliefs. From this perspective, St. Columba is not banishing the monster, but rather the spiritual beliefs of the Picts, making way for a newfound Christianity. Could the monster actually represent a more ancient culture superseded by the spread of Christianity across Scotland? Mm, I do see where you're coming from, but I think personally that the beast represents a beast living in the loch. (laughs) So for the brave modern visitor to Inverness and Loch Ness who does not fear the beast, what remains of pics can we see near Loch Ness? Well, Inverness Museum has a marvellous collection of Pictish stone carvings. But also it's well worth a visit to Urquhart Castle, which overlooks Loch Ness. And although it's built several hundred years after the Picts, it was built near an important Pictish fort. Urquhart Castle is in ruins today, however much of it still remains to wander around. It is one of the largest castles by area in Scotland, and when you're out in the loch sailing towards it, you can just see how impressive and imposing it would have looked in its prime. It was built sometime in the 1200s and was fought over by clans and kings until it was destroyed in 1692, when British troops blew up the gatehouse to prevent the castle being used by Jacobites. 
So what I find mesmerising about Urquhart Castle is how romanticised it became throughout the centuries. From Victorian painters to modern-day photographers, Urquhart Castle captures something very special about the Highland spirit and the full ambience of Loch Ness. When we look at ruins and ruined buildings, we need to use our imaginations, and because of this, we can imagine a medieval castle filled with feasting banquets, or even the same castle several hundred years later in a battle between kings. In the emptinesses of the ruined castle, in the spaces that aren't there, our minds can project us to a thousand stories of a thousand different pasts. Just like how, in the depth of Loch Ness, it inspires mystery of creatures, of myths and legends. What I find mesmerising about Urquhart Castle is the life-size and fully functioning trebuchet that it has on its front lawn. <laughs> Back in the 90s, a bunch of guys just decided, you know, they wanted to understand how these things actually worked and what kind of torque they could produce. And so they built a trebuchet to the exact specifications of a 13th century manuscript and just fired projectiles into Loch Ness and it worked perfectly. <laughs> It's amazing. Just boys and their toys. <laughs> oh, that is one of my favourite kinds of history. <laughs> when you use medieval manuscripts to make a big splash in Loch Ness. So catapulting us back to the pics. Um, trebucheting <laughs> us back to the pics. <laughs> what does Oak Castle have to do with the pics? So fragments of a Pictus broch have been discovered near the site of the castle. And archaeology shows that there was an extensive fort present before the 11th century. This ties in nicely with our good old hype man, Adam Man, who wrote that St. Columba came across a fort by the shores of the loch and upon entering found a dying Pictus chief. He spoke with the chief and converted him to Christianity right before he died. Now this could very well have been the king of the northern Picts and any clan chief by the shores of Loch Ness would have been a powerful figure. And by converting the most powerful Pict in the Highlands to Christianity, Columba is also spreading new beliefs down through all those who are ruled by him. This is documentation of a huge cultural shift that starts to bring the Celtic polytheistic Picts more in line with the rest of the British Isles. The southern Picts had already been converted by St Ninian and St Mungo. And so this really was the last of an age-old Celtic paganism, which for thousands of years had been the spiritual centre of the Picts and those that came before. I have a poem about this, written in the year 800, which sums up what you're saying very neatly. Paganism has been destroyed, though it was splendid and far-flung. The kingdoms of God the Father has filled heaven and earth and sea. Wow, that was written at the time. Well, it would have been written in Ireland, just... 150 years after St. Columba on the banks of Loch Ness. Wow, so that's such a powerful and quick change. 150 years and all of paganism has been destroyed. You know, that's, that's very emotive. It was splendid and far-flung and all of a sudden it's gone. Yes, we see the, the Picts convert to Christianity and then they're gone from the history books completely in about the year... 900, 1000. That's so interesting that the Romans couldn't get through with violence. You know, it wasn't about warfare. That's not how you conquered these people. It was through spirituality and Christianity. That's really important cultural shift. What I really love about this poem is the heaven, the earth and the sea. 
in all of the picture symbols we look at, we see these kinds of representations of, of nature and relationships with land, of hybrid creatures. So it's, it's a transition that goes from something very, very mysterious and symbolic mm. into something textual and in the written word. Mm. Yeah, and that kind of brings us to the end of the Picts, unfortunately. There's something about Loch Ness, about the location and the mountains and its history, that has inspired the imagination of people for thousands of years, from the Picts with their intricate mythical carvings to today, when people still imagine a huge prehistoric creature in its depths. To me, the imagination is one of humanity's greatest tools. It has allowed us to create and to develop and to ultimately evolve to the advanced stage that we're at now. And something about this area, Loch Ness, has captured the human imagination and held it for centuries. And there's something so mysterious and special about that. And ultimately, while Nessie may be a monster, I think she's made us more human. (laughs) (laughs) In some ways, I agree. (laughs) I think that the Pictish Beast is a great example of our need for imagination to understand human heritage and our past. The Pictish Beast could have meant different things even to different groups of Picts over time and space. The Pictish Beasts and legends of monsters more generally remind us of the dualities and paradoxes of being human. The monster can represent something wild, dangerous, fierce, barbaric, but equally the monster's strong, powerful and poignant symbol of our relationship with nature and a connection to our more ancient selves. And I think that really symbolizes the Picts as well. You know, they were strong and powerful and a poignant symbol of Scottish history and their relationship with the Romans as well really shows that they were a beast to the Romans. They really were the last of the three. Mm. My favourite thing about material history from the Picts, stone carvings and metalwork, is that you can tell that they are over a millennium old. They are tarnished from weathering or dented by time, and there's something really incredible about seeing human-made objects that have been on this world for so long. My granny never used to polish her silver teapot because she saw on the TV show Bargain Hunt that silver gets a tarnish, a patina that adds value. And I think that with Pictish artefacts, as well as this literal patina and weathering that we see on them, I think there's a kind of metaphorical patina from the layers of stories we can read from them and from the amount of imagination we need to be able to understand these people. What is a patina? (laughs) I don't think I know. (laughs) A patina is a layer of ageing that forms on the surface of an artefact. For example, the discoloration of old coins is a patina. The Statue of Liberty is probably the most famous example of a patina because the statue was originally copper and because that oxidised, it's now its iconic green colour. Oh, you learn something new every day. That concludes part one of Loch Ness. In part two, we're going to pick up on the natural history, science and technology around the loch. There will also be plenty of monster revelations to get your teeth into. I've been Jenny. And I've been Annie. Thank you so much for listening to Stories of Scotland and coming on this journey with us. And we'll see you next week.
yes, no need pop. It's like I'm in the lock. I've got a, an entire ghost lock behind me. 